don't think I'm worthless, but I have edited the podcast so far. And I don't know if I'm What? Hey, y'all. Elizabeth? Hey. Yeah, hey, how are you? Pretty good. How are you doing? Oh, I'm super good. Thank you. Uh, um, that's good to know. Hey, I have a question before we get started here. I think we, yeah. on behalf of all of us, how do you pronounce your last name? <laughs> Cat. Okay. Just, yeah. like the, just like the critter. Just like the critter. <laughs> good to hear. Good to hear. Um, it's been an ongoing, almost sort of joke. Like we referenced you several times in the sh- in the show. Um, uh-huh. And but <laughs> I've been repping the shit out of Elizabeth Caddy. <laughs> <laughs> that's so funny. Uh, no, no, no. It's it's it's, it's like it's cat. Okay. Cool. Nothing fancy about it. Cool. Well, thanks for joining us today, Elizabeth. Um, hey, it's my pleasure. Well, I guess I should go uh, as if you didn't already know who we all are, but I'm Terrence. Tom. And Tanya. And, hey. All right, let me uh, turn your mic up a little bit, Tanya. Lest I get accused of... Um, <laughs> trying to silence our... Uh... <laughs> oh, hey, Matt. Yep. <laughs> Sorry. You're on my phone line, man. I'm on your phone line. <laughs> <laughs> New number, who did? I'm leaving leaving this in. (laughs) I heard someone popping in there. New number, who did? Sorry. I actually use the phone during my show. I don't know about other programs. No, not not me, not me. Elizabeth, can I call you back real quick? Me me or the person you're interviewing? Elizabeth, if if she's still there. All right. All right, good luck, everybody. (laughs) Elizabeth, are you there? Yeah. Oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, wow. That's S is the, it. S we is are the, balling on a budget over here. Yeah. <laughs> we have one phone line. We're like high school uh, kids. We live at home with our parents. Our our dad <laughs> happens to be doing a radio show downstairs. No, this is like when you used to have a party line. Yeah. My aunt had a party line in her holler, and like everybody in the holler used the same goddamn phone, and you could just eavesdrop on everybody. Hell yeah. <laughs> All right. I was talking about party lines last night with my boyfriend. Swear to God, we used to have one too, and it was so creepy that I wanted to write letters to like Ripley's Believe It or Not. <laughs> hear people talking on my phone line about the party line. Yeah, That's dude. So good. Yeah, holler party lines. Um, all right, Elizabeth, let me call you back real quick. Okay, sure. Sorry. Oh shit. <laughs> Jesus Christ. This is too much. Hello. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Um, welcome to the podcast. <laughs> Thanks for having me. All right. Um. So, uh, yeah. Before I guess before we get started, Elizabeth, uh, you um want to give us a little bit of information about yourself, a little bit of personal background, what you study, where you're from, etc. Uh, sure, sure. I am a public historian. Um, that's kind of a different sort of historian. Someone who tries to help members of the public as opposed to, you know, in the academy, um, understand history and use history more in their daily lives. Um, I'm from East Tennessee, from Knoxville. Originally, I just moved to Stanton, Virginia. Um, I have a book that's coming out um, in a couple months called What You're Getting Wrong About Appalachia that sort of tackles the whole Trump country J.D. Vance hillbilly LG phenomenon. Hell yeah, our, our favorite topic. <laughs> yeah, and the cover looks dope as shit too. Oh yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's super super good. I'm really pleased with that. Um, so 
so yeah, no, we can talk about um, your book. I want to talk about your book a little bit. Um, I guess it'll probably tie into what we're going to be talking a little bit about today. Um, today, I wanted to get things started off with uh, what's the matter with the white working class? <laughs> what's what's, what what's up with that with bunch? The white working class. Yeah, what is the matter? Um, heathens. Heathens. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so, uh, you know, there's this uh, new book out. Um, there's uh, probably one just about every week these days uh, purporting mm-hmm. to be a sort of um, soothsayer or interpreter of the white working class. And the most recent one is by uh, someone named Joan Williams. Um, what is it called? Um, white working class overcoming class cluelessness in America. What we wanted to do was talk about this book on the podcast without actually having read any of it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We just know it's bad. (laughs) Right. Well, she did. Okay, so Joan did write an article in the Harvard Business Review about uh, this very thing right after the election, and it looks like they've just sort of turned her uh, article into a a book, if that sounds about right. So, um, so yeah, I don't know, Elizabeth. I guess the first question is, um, like, what is this idea of um, the white working class, and why does it have so much purchase? I guess among um, such a large—well, I wouldn't even say it's a large group of individual, but uh, it is—it maintains a very dominant place in the sort of discourse right now. Well, I mean, the the big reason is it's very profitable for somebody, right? right. Um, whether it's kind of Ivy League educated academics flexing their credentials, or liberals who feel like um, sort of guilty from the election about misunderstanding, um, <laughs> you know, their downtrodden neighbors. Um, this is a huge cottage industry of sort of explainer. Um, uh, books and articles that have come about, <laughs> and I would prepare yourself for many, many more to come, because it's about the right kind of point in time, right, for all the kind of think pieces and hot takes, mine included, I guess, um, that were <laughs> written right after the election to kind of start coming out all at once. Um, but yeah, I mean, I read the Harvard Business Review piece when it came out, and it was it was exceptionally bad. And one of the reasons why I think it's so bad is you have this kind of class of people who think that they're social, well, they are social scientists, but they're kind of interpreting sort of weighty topics and complex social issues to a general audience. And they say, <laughs> they're like, well, what we're going to tell you is backed up with data, it's backed up with science, it's polling, we're kind of making this digestible to you. Um, but it's also laden with a lot of like cheap anecdotes. So my favorite one from her uh, Harvard Business Review article was about her father-in-law eating blood soup. Right. (laughs) Yeah, I saw it right out of the gate. As a poor person. And then, like, somehow that explains um, his, I guess, you know, long smoldering class resentment um, growing up. So these, like, little anthropological-like observations about poor people that are peppered in through what is, ultimately like really bland analysis about a complex group of people so i i think what what we'll see when people start talking about this book is that there's no clear definition about 
who the white working class actually is. Like, what are the characteristics that make somebody um, working class besides, you know, voting a certain way or having a specific set of politics? Um, is it a way to kind of make class colorblind in a way that it should not be and that it's inappropriate to talk about? Um, and kind of playing an old game, an old game with saying that race and class, you know, one one subsumes the other, but not really adding much to the conversation. Right. Yeah, you're you're exactly right. It's it's like it's like a way to sort of yeah pay lip service to class and race without actually addressing what either of those mean or where they come from or the sort of like foundational um, uh, sort of structures that that make them up. I think like the people that populate this genre, the people like you know Joan Williams, also J.D. Vance, and Charles Murray. I think what really gets them excited is this idea that they can make class discourse or discussions about class colorblind. And I think the reason that that gets them really excited is that they know that the way that we talk about class, and particularly people who are lower class, people who are poor, is so racialized, you know what I mean? Like all the baggage, or most of the baggage that we get when we talk about um, working class people and poor people, like we see them through these racial lenses, even if they're white. We kind of, you know, get away with saying negative things about people because our culture has normalized saying negative things about people of color, for example, who um, are more often than white people to be living in poverty and that sort of thing. And so I think they get really sort of like turned on by this idea that they can deflect that onto different groups of people and continue these conversations, but using and substituting different subjects. So this idea that they can make, I don't know, um, sort of negative, the boot, they can they can dilute the bootstrapping narrative by making it really colorblind at this moment where, um, you know, there's a lot of money to be made and casting your net far and wide in these narratives. How can we get in on that rack? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Do some poverty tours in Whitesburg, maybe. <laughs> I've, I've done my fair yeah, share of that. We're one oh, step yeah. ahead of you there. Yeah. <laughs> um, I've been there. So, yeah, it seems it's very interesting, um, and you make a very good point. It seems like it's a sort of way to neutralize the discussion about class. It seems like a, a, a very effective way to neutralize uh, class consciousness. Um, to me, anyways, I don't know. It just um, it feels like by... So, I don't know, uh, an article that we had discussed before, that I was talking to you about before um, you came on, was this one in the L.A. Review of Books by David Rodiger? Rodiger? I'm going to get that wrong. Um, But, like, one of the things he was talking about in his article is essentially, like, um, you know, Joan C. Williams can kind of, like, fudge the numbers on what she considers to be a uh, working class. She can she can fudge the numbers on what she considers to be sort of middle class. Uh, but she doesn't really get into any sort of like profound observations about what class is or, or about what the working class is in general in America. So it seems to me to, to sort of uphold the status quo, if that makes any sense. Yeah, I mean, people are responding, I think, who are sort of populating this genre. It feels like we have experienced a massive political tilt because we're in this really shitty political moment. But 
the swing, I don't think, and, you know, you can correct me if I'm, like, misinterpreting the numbers, is not hugely significant in a historical way, if you get to my drift. Like, 10,000 people flip-flopping their vote is not something that we need to realign our kind of understanding about race and class for, if that makes sense. Uh And I I think that the people who are um, sort of, like, applying their insights to these topics really want a ginormous political shift to be there that, that really isn't, right? So poor people still aren't voting. Um, working class people are still racist. You know, sometimes white working class people still vote on the basis of their um, racial affiliations. And it's not really, I don't know, it's not a fundamental shift in our society where we have ended up now. And it's kind of working from the present backwards to pretend that it is, if that makes sense. So you get a lot of funky things that people like Joan Williams does when she says, well, I'm talking about the middle class, but really I'm going to call it the working class, right? Or I'm talking about white people, but I'm not going to discuss um, racial frameworks. So it's not providing any sort of great insight to, to people who study these things or who think critically about these things. But it probably is making people um, feel that they're approaching these topics in more, I don't know, that that they're getting some kind of insight or knowledge from these, you know, books and articles because the people have impressive credentials, for example. Um, So, you know, I don't know what the future will be for this kind of, um, this kind of writing or academic, you know, response to the election. But it's, you know, it's kind of really, really limp the moment yeah you know this is something that we talked about in the very first episode about jd vance is that you can actually sort of plot the spectrum of white supremacist uh writing you can put people like jd vance and uh joan williams on that sort of spectrum um mostly because they're sort of giving credence to this idea of they're giving political consciousness to whiteness and and they're putting it into a class context. And that's a very dangerous thing when you've got rising fascism all across the world. Um, And, and it's really, it's just really kind of scary when you um, think about the fact that these books sell a lot and these are, these are people that get uh, put on CNN and, you know, they're they're very popular pundits and all this. You know, I just want to read a quote from um, this article. I printed it off by uh, this. You're here like a professor with yeah, your papers. Yeah, I know. I came prepared, <laughs> goddammit. <laughs> this woman named uh, Lisa Tilly. Uh, you may have read this. Have you read this, Elizabeth? Um, I don't know. I don't think so. She she wrote this article. It's in it's in the, some uh, publication called Wildcat Dispatches. I don't know. But it's uh, Lisa Tilly, The Making of the White Working Class. Where fascist resurgence meets leftist way anxiety. So I just want to read a quote from this. She said, These narratives are unsettling precisely because they serve to build a white political consciousness and therefore to do the work of the far right in constructing the ideal constituency for fascist politics to speak to. I mean, that kind of, um, that's pretty bleak. So it's like you yeah. talk about the future of this kind of writing. I think it's finding a lot of purchase, not just, you know, we talk, we've talked a lot about it on this show, but it's finding a lot of purchase with the people who want to fucking march in Pikeville. It's a very dangerous narrative to be putting out there. 
Yeah, I think one of the most dangerous things about these narratives, they, they apply a sense of coherence and a sense of cohesiveness to white culture that's not there. And that's one of the reasons why I, I think J.D. Vance is a ghoul, because he is you know, using a reason and saying that 25 million people have um, a stable and coherent cultural identity. And that's not true. Uh, hey, Elizabeth, can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Okay, all right. Start with start with JD Vance is a ghoul. Start with JD Vance is a ghoul, please. <laughs> I just want to hear you say it. So one of the reasons why I think JD Vance is a is a ghoul um, is because he applies a sense of um, you know cohesiveness and coherentness to uh, a culture that, that just doesn't exist. Right? There's 25 million people who live in Appalachia. Um, it's a multicultural place. He's saying that there's a dominant culture um, and that this culture has certain qualities, that it has genetic qualifications, and that, if, you know, if, if you don't belong in this culture, then, then you're not really, you know, part of the region that, you know, you're not somebody who's worthy of being discussed or considered, um, even in sort of these negative ways that, um, he seems to favor and that people like him seem to favor. So I think that is incredibly dangerous. And I don't know, I get a lot of criticism for kind of saying that, you know, when you say that um, there's a unified culture here, that it, um, you know, is not homogenous, that that does work for white supremacy. But I absolutely think that it does. Yeah. And, you know, what we've talked about on the show before is that we see this come in waves. Like you're saying, this isn't, this is, it seems like there's a new audience for this right now, but it's not necessarily new. Um, mm-hmm. And what we've talked about seeing this in waves is, you know, even around, um, around Katrina, when Katrina popped off and just um, the devastation in New Orleans was um, taking over uh, our TVs that we felt like that was around the same time that, um, big news outlets really clung on to the like strip mining movement and started being like, mm. but wait, look at these, look at these poor white people mining coal the wrong way or whatever the fuck <laughs> they decided <laughs> it, they were going to say about it. Um, and even before that, I mean, the building we're in was created, um, that houses this community radio station was created during the war on poverty mm-hmm. at a time when, um, poverty was not displayed on television or anywhere uh, as white and then and suddenly Harry Cottle drops his book you know this Mm. is in the height of um of the civil rights movement and the Vietnam and the Vietnam War and Harry Cottle drops his night comes to the Cumberlands at the right time right place right time he just shows up with his dick out right place right time (laughs) and uh, (laughs) there's pictures in Life magazine of Harry Cottle with his dick out (laughs) I'm sure you've seen him and so suddenly all the cameras shift here um, and presidents are coming here and they launched the war on poverty and um, even this institution we're in was started in that time. Uh, they quickly decided we were too radical and pulled funding, but we have prevailed. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> um, yeah, I feel like we, we've talked about this. We're, so, we're starting to sound like Baptists. We say mm. everything three times, you know, we tell them what we're right. going to tell them, tell them, then tell them what we told them. <laughs> well, but I think it's because this idea is so persistent. Yeah. Um, and it, you know, it's just, um, it's kind of this idea that there was a lot of joking. <laughs> 
there was a lot of joking right after the election from people on sort of like left weird Twitter. <laughs> it was like um, the take the takeaway that the Democrats are going to have after the election was like, well, I guess it's time to get a little more racist. <laughs> we're going to have oh, to yeah. we're going to have to meet people yeah. where they at. But but like the idea of meeting people where they're at does not mean <laughs> meet people to where, where they're at uh, to be more sympathetic to their conservative values and uh, and sort of fears of what. Uh, uh, white supremacy ending and all this it's it should be like you should be trying to understand the sort of social relations and power dynamics of society around you like that's you know that's what leftists do we don't come into a community and look at it and say like well it's a white working class (laughs) they've been left behind here (laughs) like that's just the diagnosis everybody and you've got to you've got to get a little more racist if you want to understand them (laughs) it's it's like that that article that we were talking about in the Los Angeles uh, review of uh, Charles Rodiger, it it's interesting that he was talking about this term white working class wasn't even really existent prior to very recently. It's not a term that has been uh, prevalent in sort of American discourse. Yeah, no, it's a. I mean, it, in sort of like the acronym that we all use now, like the WWC. No, that's like it's a you know it's a recent it's a recent invention. Um, one of the, I mean, one of the things that I find really, really fascinating that I struggle with in my work and I try to write about it and try to, you know, apply um, critical thinking to is why people need Appalachia to be white. Because um, obviously we're not a place that has, you know, a lot of robust racial diversity in some areas. But I looked, you know, you can look at the last census and um, 10 is like the top whitest places in the United States. There are two in Appalachia, right? So... Casting the region as monolithic, as like this sort of like last bastion of the white working class, um, is a really kind of sleazy lens and dangerous lens to apply to the region. Um, People use it, like you said, they like really get excited that there are people out there who can complicate, um, you know, universal notions of things like white privilege. Like um, J.D. Vance loves to kind of compare. Um, the, the um, Barack Obama's daughters to coal miners in West Virginia. Oh my God. Like, go, you know, go explain privilege to a coal miner in West Virginia looking at, you know, Sasha Obama who could benefit from affirmative action. <laughs> Never mind that they're, you know, African-American coal Jesus miners. Um, but it's this idea that they really like to, that, you know, they like this complication that Appalachians provide. Um, and I think, you know, that's something that we were talking about, you know, a little bit earlier, why... Um, why people discuss class and race very badly in our current moment is because they, they, they like the idea that, that the working class can be, uh, the white working class can be almost like an oppressed minority. And so, I, you know, Appalachia has been sort of ground zero recently for that kind of, you know, sleazy fodder. Yeah, it encourages class cooperation. And by that I mean it encourages, if you appeal to the whiteness you uh, are basically encouraging cooperation um among the working class and the ruling class because it, it gives you a sort of like common it and, and and that's why i think like maybe jd vance and these people latch on to this idea and i could be wrong i don't know i mean i tend to look at this in a very marxist way but i i think that they they 
they push this so hard because it does sort of diffuse class solidarity. It does sort of neutralize class solidarity. If you can, if you can cut out, if you can carve out an entire sort of electorate from the working class and call them the white working class, well, yeah. it's, it's, it, it is very effective at neutralizing class solidarity. And that's the last thing that the ruling classes want is for all, us to all band together. Yeah, I mean, people um, like to teach, I mean, class mobility is, you know, if it exists at all, it's going to exist for white individuals, and people tease class mobility um, at sort of lower middle class people. It's easier to um, kind of imagine a scenario where you can transcend sort of like the, the negative baggage associated with your class. But it's definitely, I think it is definitely driving a wedge. Um, <laughs> I don't know if you guys... I don't know if you guys saw this, but some very um, private school recently had, I think it was Choate, had um, a headline like, um, Choate students um, have a new appreciation for hillbillies. And oh, <laughs> yeah, I think I did see this. <laughs> and so I also think that what I was going to say is I also don't think that you can achieve like class solidarity. And when you always feel like that you're the subject of... Um, pieces like this, like you're not doing the work. It's it's really hard. Like I think really talented people can like build up and tear down at the same time, but I I don't think that I'm <laughs> I'm equipped for that. So I'm sort of like a tearing down person, and I think you know this political moment calls for both. So people who need to build coalitions, but also people who need to keep like breaking down those stereotypes, and it's obviously very distracting to keep having to. Um, explain yourself, explain your, you know, your, your upbringing, explain your class consciousness to, to the world at large. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, and we don't have to spend much more time on it, but there was one thing in this uh, book that I found in the article that was fucking crazy, um, was about Joan Williams, um, like adoration of Bill Clinton as like what, what he said, what she says was he? She says he was the last Democratic president to truly understand the white working class. Oh my god! <laughs> so like, um, the fu- one of the funny things about this is that um, you know, this article mentions this sort of um, campaign. This this, and I don't know if you remember this. this is towards the end of the article. This campaign that uh, Clinton's like campaign team. Um, was doing in Michigan, Macomb County, Michigan. It says, the project invited white workers to identify as middle-class taxpayers in a white community rather than as workers in integrated plants and unions. The, quote, white working class voter was attended to and half understood in a way that fully accented the white and engaged class negligibly. God, I really (laughs) messed that term up. Um, But so that's interesting. And then in 2016, Trump did the exact same thing in the exact same county. So it's very mm. it's very interesting to think about. Uh, Bill Clinton sabotaged <laughs> his wife by providing the blueprint. Well, yeah, it's just like these pollsters have this uh, idea of this. It's like sort of like you were saying earlier, Elizabeth. Like they have this idea that like the white working class, like if you can sort of isolate them, negate the class part, emphasize the white part, they can be flipped to sort of like do whatever you want to do with them, and. Um, I, I don't know. I just thought that was a very interesting part of the book. Uh, and as we're roasting this book, um, <laughs> that's just ridiculous that Joan Williams thinks that that's a, just a really great idea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Maybe it's a short short that Bill Clinton used to wear or something. But <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, 
Well, so uh, let's uh, c- can we talk a little bit about your book? I mean, yeah, um, of course. So, uh, what is everyone getting wrong with Appalachia? I mean, I'm sure you probably you've you've definitely uh, mentioned some of the things, but don't give it all away. We want yeah, to buy oh. your book. Yeah, and tell everybody <laughs> where they can find it to buy it. Yeah. <laughs> so all of our okay, listeners. Okay, sure. So, so the book is basically me hating on um, a lot of the articles and takes and sort of commentary that were gener- that was generated about Appalachia during the election. I actually counted them up at one time, and there are close to, like, 24 articles about McDowell County, West Virginia. Oh, my God. Like, during this, like, four, like four to six-month sort of peak um, between, like, right before the West Virginia primary um, and the general election. So I do a lot of, like, tearing down of those, but I also use history to kind of push back at these narratives because, I mean, what is striking to me, I'm sure it's what is striking to you, so when you read these pieces, there's so many types of individuals, so many um, important moments from history that are left out. Um, according to what's written about Appalachia, I don't exist. I'm sure you guys don't exist. People with progressive politics don't exist. Um, people of color don't exist. People who are trying to make the region better, you know, yeah. they just, they, they don't exist. Unless you're like a, a you know, a disadvantaged coal miner with a sad story you know you really don't exist in these narratives so i try to use uh you know a lot of history um from about the the turn of the 19th century to the present day to kind of push back on this to show where these narratives come from i want to really locate bad takes about appalachia in an economy so i want to show that um writing shitty articles and books and narratives about Appalachia makes people money, makes people, makes people who aren't Appalachians money, I should say. Um, so just to say that, the, you know, these are part of like a cycle of plunder that's been happening in the region. Um, I also want to introduce people to a lot of people, to a lot of individuals and stories that are just completely left out. So people like um, Appalachian group to save the land and the people, mm-hmm. um, all the, you know, Blair Mountain made one, things that people, you know, it might be on their radar, or maybe they want to learn more about it, um, and to talk about what radical action people in Appalachia have taken to arrest or, you know, mitigate the problem. Um, Elizabeth, I, I appreciate this so much. I'm pretty excited to get your book, um, and one, I want to know if you'll come do a book signing little thing in Wattsburg. We'd love to have you here. Yeah, absolutely. If you're planning on uh, touring around like a rock star. Um, yeah, if you um, if you send me your address on Twitter or something like that, I'll send you a copy of the book. Yeah, and we'd love to have you here too. And I will come. come do all the all the stuff in Whitesburg. Yay! Sounds great. Um, <laughs> I, I I appreciate this so much because literally just today, and this has been ongoing I, where I work, we are dealing with severe. Um, uh, journalist fatigue every day almost we get a call from some journalist somewhere like today it was some woman in Belgium who is coming here next week and is being so mm-hmm. pushy and she literally calls and this is they all do I want to talk to a out-of-work coal miner and, <laughs> and you know and uh, and you're just like well call a f- the fucking unemployment office I don't know what to fucking tell you like 
And so, of course, we know You'll people. You'll find the most end-of-the-rope bastard <laughs> you Yeah, can find. yeah. Why do you want to come here and salt people's wounds, man? And so, you know, we we were kind of, you know, we, uh, my coworker planned this whole thing for her. She was like, okay, come on Friday night and get up Saturday morning, go to the farmer's market. You can talk to people there. Then go to, um, then go to the small businesses in town. You can talk to people there. On Sunday, I'll take you a tour around the county. And then on Monday, you can go to Cowan Creek Music School, which is this beautiful music school that's happening mm-hmm. to start here on Monday and the woman was like no 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 I need direct contacts <laughs> with people I need an out of work coal miner I want to get like, black lung myself yeah, it's just like they have a fucking list quota and my I was in, in the office with my um, co-worker we share an office and she was literally yelling at this woman on the phone she was just like I told you that I have journalist fatigue right now and I just set this whole thing up for you and I didn't know that what you actually wanted was to just um, leech off of any um, relationships we have in this community. <laughs> did, you, did you tell them all the unemployed cold miners were busy learning how to code? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's a funny, it's a funny thing. Um, it's actually, they had a funny, and they had a funny joke about this on Chapo this week. Cause like uh, coal miners are basically like chimney sweeps. Like, it's like they don't really even exist anymore. Like yeah. they do out West and there's some in West Virginia still, but there's like 36 employed miners in our County right now. Uh, not a whole lot of them left. Yeah. Um, and it's funny you say that because that uh, that this Megan fucking Kelly oh, shit oh. from the weekend. It's so hideous. And and they aired at the same time as this godforsaken uh, Alex Jones bit is yeah. aired <laughs> is aired at the same the same segment as the Hillbilly Days. They call they call Rusty fucking Justice. The the bit source motherfucker in Pikeville, they call him a hillbilly hero and it's all wrapped in together. And I swear to God, I feel like this is a this is a targeted attempt to use poor white people, the white working class, to for her to like bring her conservative audience mm. with her. She's literally using us and, and there's even a segment with um Ada Smith on there. Um talking about people leaving um, the region for economic opportunities and they use this whole fucked up brain drain narrative which Ada did Mm. not say but they're like everyone the best and brightest leaves and it's like bitch do we wear too much camo are we invisible where we're here we're here (laughs) what the fuck Oh, yeah, I think like when I was doing sort of like writing on my website, one, one of the articles that really made me snap was um, for a reason. Do you know that website? It's like yes. for I think, it's a, I think it's like a libertarian yeah, website. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, and it's a guy called Ron Bailey who wrote about his trip to you yeah. guessed it, McDowell County, West Virginia. <laughs> oh yeah. Um, yeah. And he goes oh, yeah. and he goes to like the office of Head Start or something like that, and he talks to children. And he's like, oh these children God. are just, uh, they're like PR machines. They're like, you know, telling, you, you got to feel bad for them because they're trying to tell us good things about their town. And it's, oh it is, it's, it's, you know, it's really horrible that to think of like the other side to that where you're kind of like minding your own business as sort of like a 13-year-old and head start. And some guy from like a libertarian website comes into your office and is like, hey, your existence sucks. Can I write it out? You got a good quote for me? And this is like real fatigue that people are having. And it's, you know, it, it, it makes me very angry. Yeah. It's impossible. Yeah. You can say something, Tom. You look like you wanted I had, to. I had a, a joke worked up in my head, but I couldn't articulate it. It's all right. It's going to be about Ron telling kids it was cool to smoke pot, but paying taxes was not cool. <laughs> 
but I, I, I couldn't finesse it. <laughs> well, um, yeah, so, uh, yeah, I totally feel that too, uh, journalist fatigue. Um, but I want to sort of uh, not necessarily pivot away from this, but I kind of just want to talk a little bit about, like, um, what the future is for, like, leftist organizing in general like or how we can put push back on this white working class thing basically what i'm asking you elizabeth is how you feel about the absolute boy jeremy corbyn (laughs) the the absolute boy (laughs) oh i love jeremy corbyn um i used i lived in a part of the it's not part of the uk but i used to live in this place called the isle of man which is right off the coast of england um And so I have, like, radical miners on both sides of my family. I have, like, the British miners from the 1980s, um, but also have, like, Appalachian miners. So I was super excited to um, see what Labor did in the last election. And I think, like, as a leftist and as a person who um, is losing hope from time to time, the the election really moved me in a way that, um, beyond my cynicism that I feel on almost a daily or hourly basis about um, a way forward. Right. And so, like, do you have any um, thoughts on, like, the lessons that we can take for, like, with that in mind into, uh, I know it's a construct that doesn't exist, but, like, uh, what people term Trump country, you know what I'm saying? Like, uh, or rural organizing in general, or or with this idea in mind, I guess, of Trump country. I don't know if that makes any sense. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the lessons from the British election is um, go left or go home, right? Um, there was a suspicion <laughs> among um, pundits that Jeremy uh, that Jeremy was too radical for. Um, his party, that he was pushing his party too far left in a really dangerous way. Sounds familiar. Um, yeah. So, and I mean, it did. It sounded familiar. So I think, um, you know, the lesson for me is to keep pushing left. Um, obviously, it's going to be different for me because um, I am going to try to organize here around healthcare, um, And that's not quite the same dynamic um, that people experience in the UK because of they have you know yeah. universal health care. Yeah. Um, but you know anti austerity, um, universal basic income, universal health care, are sort of what I see personally as a way forward for regions like ours. Um, I was reading in the Guardian. You know the Guardian did like a follow up about the Pikeville rally recently, and it was um, it was about two young women who were waitresses. I don't know if you guys read this. Uh-uh. But um, they were waitresses who were, like, waiting on Matthew Heimbach um, and some sort of traditional worker party people and how they were, like, you know, really tempted by – one of them was skeptical, but one of them was really tempted by what she was hearing about um, this faux support for working families. And we have to very strongly we take that seriously um, and push back against it. We need to talk about – our problems with race and our problems with gender in the region, because if we're not going to talk about them, somebody else is going to talk about them. Yeah. Um, they're going to do it badly. Um, so we need to control our narratives, uh, both the good things about the region and the bad things about the region, um, and have these open conversations about what we can do better, what we can move forward, to keep pushing left, um, to give people... We have to give people something. Um, the Democratic Party doesn't give people in Appalachia anything, I think. Um, a friend right. of mine said recently anything. something like, uh, once you start hating Democrats, it's easy to keep hating Democrats. 
And I was a little bit skittish towards that uh, when I first heard it, but now I'm kind of, you know, on board. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that, you know, there's, there's, gonna, there's, we have to take our own way forward. Yeah. Um, it can't get, it can't get much worse, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's true. There, and the, well, the, so the reason I ask is because this idea, this construct of Trump country seems to imply that where we live is any more conservative than anywhere else in the United States. And, First of all, you know, I think you'd probably agree with me that that's not true. Um, mm-hmm. Second of all, the United States at large is not a conservative country. The The people in mass, if you are a Democrat, uh, if you believe in democracy, I mean, a small t Democrat, you believe in democracy, yeah. you believe that people in mass working together make the best possible decisions for the future and and if you give them a vision that that is compelling and that makes them want to fight with one another for that future they'll work towards it and i think that that's what corbin showed um but this idea that you know people like joan c williams who you know made her career as a feminist scholar uh you know a liberal scholar is like like if they keep putting forward this narrative that these places are inherently conservative and you just have to go down to them and meet them where they're at and just get a little more racist, then mm-hmm. um, then they're going to continue to be ineffective. Um, and so I think that it's just important to keep all that in mind, um, you know, as we sort of move forward as as leftists. And I don't that's that's the reason I sort of like posed it in, in that framing, if that makes any sense. No, I mean, I'm a big believer in solidarity and getting people to buy in to a shared commitment to one another. Um, there's lots of potential for that to happen here. Um, you know, history gives us great examples of that happening in the past, in the recent past in Appalachia. It's happening today, too, just a little bit more out of sight, perhaps. But, um, you know, if we can find ways to help people create the solidarity outside of sort of this narrative that's being imposed on us, that we are, you know, sort of like people who need to be saved by outsiders, people who need to be, like, pitied and protected, um, I think that might kind of bring some, I don't know, bring bring some brighter days to at least people, you know, in a small way. Yeah. And it feels like um, organizers all over the country have a lot to learn and gain from rural experiences and... Um, even not beyond rural, even Appalachian experiences. It's like we know our neighbors, right? We talk to each other. We run into people we don't like at Food City and we fucking talk to them <laughs> because we have to. <laughs> yeah. we, we can't just write people off completely and never deal with them again, much as I have tried. <laughs> like you actually have to work through shit with people and and go and be on a journey together of imperfection. We are like not perfect. We're fucking up. Um, and we have to. We have to keep going together. We have to keep mm-hmm. doing things together. And I feel like um, a lot of the organizing um, in big urban centers, if people can just write someone off and just go organize in another group yeah. of people and like they don't have to deal with you anymore. If, you know, you don't have to deal with them if you don't want to. Um, and people are just more scared of each other. I mean, we t- I talked about this. I mean, when I go to cities, I'm I'm fighting my own fear of other people because I'm out of my comfort zone. And mm-hmm. I can't imagine feeling like that all the time <laughs> in a city where you just know so few of the people around you. Um, any given time, I just about know most of the people around me. Um, no, almost no matter where I'm at, at least I've had conversation with them before um, or know their 
sister's brother-in-law's kid or whatever it is, you know? Um, so, uh, before we start sort of, uh, wrap this up, I only had one more thing I wanted to talk about. Uh, mm-hmm. And it doesn't even really warrant much of a discussion because it's a stupid fucking podcast that nobody listens to. Not ours. It's the one I'm about to talk about. <laughs> uh, people actually listen to our podcast. But this mm-hmm. podcast was... Uh, <laughs> well, anyway. uh, it's either people or bots. I don't know. <laughs> but um, this podcast uh, from like West Virginia Public Broadcasting or whatever was talking shit about our homie Elizabeth. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, my beef, my beef with uh, yeah. the front porch. Yeah, yeah. So I, I just wanted to, on the Trill Billy podcast, fucking call out the front porch, uh, your shit, no one listens to you. <laughs> Tom's Fuck better. your whole crew. Fuck, Fuck your, your whole crew. crew. Tom's better at this than I am. Did y'all, did y'all listen to say that Sorry, a, we can't hear Say you. that again, Elizabeth. I mean, did you guys listen to the segment that they did? It was oh, it was kind of weird. It was weird. It was I, I very weird. To, yeah, I, I listened to it as well. It was strange. <laughs> they just wanted to hear both sides. No, <laughs> I didn't God. know. I did not know that the Black Panthers were in Pikeville until <laughs> 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 until so, uh, so I listened to Lori Lynn on the West Virginia Public Radio. This is so absurd. So absurd. Um, yeah, no, it's funny, though, that they're framing for that whole thing. It's like they have to have a conservative on there to sort of... <laughs> Gotta hear both sides. Gotta hear both sides. Yeah. Well, Elizabeth, I actually wanted to ask about um, your small business that you have um, that you do. You offer research support to organizers, right? I do. So I have a company. I'm a You're cutting out again, sweetie. Sorry. So I do research consulting. I have a small company called Passel, and we offer free research services to anybody that lives in Appalachia um, that we like. (laughs) 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 If we don't like you, you can't get our labor. But no, um, if if you have like a community group that's you know trying to do work on some social issues like prison, prison abolition, pipelines. Um, you think that you might need some historical perspective or you need to know how to use an archive um, or where some resources might be located, you know, anyone can feel free to contact us and we'll do our best to help. That is so helpful. Um, The three of us have definitely run into this issue of trying to dig up a ton of shit. Consider your first mission to find that archive photo of Harry Cotter with his dick out. (laughs) (laughs) We need it back. your first assignment from the trail so that we could be the cover it. art on this episode on SoundCloud. We're That'll making be... it a T-shirt. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that should be the that should be the Trillbillies. Instead of the Avon lady, it's Harry Cotter leaning up against a Cadillac with his dick out. <laughs> this is going to be our version of uh, John Dillinger's dick in the Smithsonian. <laughs> yeah. Oh gosh. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm probably going to hit you up for something. And if you yeah, like... I mean, and people, I mean, the other thing is like. People need things like references for jobs and, you know, mentoring advice and things like that. Um, so if you're a person who, um, you know, wants to try to find an internship at a museum or, or do something like that, you know, anything that we can, basically anything that we can do to help, um, we will we will do it. Well, you you got, know, you can well, you Skype me, email, whatever. <laughs> we're, at, we're at the disposal of um, cool people in the region. <laughs> Well, awesome. we know a lot of cool people. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, 
Well, you definitely got to come visit us in Wattsburg. We'll uh, take you to the temperature-controlled vault of the Apple Shop archive. You can get jiggy with it. Oh, nice, there. nice. <laughs> yeah, and then we'll have you actually on the podcast, like in the in the studio. Um, get a group group yeah. pick. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, but yeah, Elizabeth, thanks for uh, being on the show today. I mean, I guess we'll let you go. Uh, we've taken up a hour, solid hour of your time. If you don't care, tell us one more time how to get your book. Oh, yeah. So um, Belt Publishing, uh, just B-E-L-T, um, has the book now available for pre-order. If you pre-order it now, I sign it, but, you know, you can wait. There'll be an e-book. Um, hopefully, I'll get up to some bookstores, you know, in the region and do um, some events there. But check it out on Belt Publishing. If you think that you, um, if you have a media organization and you want, like, an advanced copy, there's contact information to kind of put in a request for that, too. Sweet. Cool. Perfect. Well, um, I'll definitely get it. So, um, thanks for joining us, and uh, we'll see you on the interwebs and hopefully in person soon. <laughs> okay, you guys take care. Thanks so much. Hi, Elizabeth. Thank you, Elizabeth. Thank you, Elizabeth.